0: If you got your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter two this morning. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, you should have one in the chair rack in front of you, perhaps. What's uh, going to be on the screen behind me too. So, uh, we are people of the Word here at Fellowship, and if this is your first time with us, you should probably know that up front. Uh, I don't really have much to say outside of God's Word, so uh, that's where we're going to go uh, this morning in our time together. You know, I don't know if I don't know if I'm just. Um, I don't know if the spirit of God is just at work, or if it's that espresso I had this morning, but um, it's probably a combination of both. Uh, but man, it has already been a, a special morning, and I I hope that you see <clears throat> we got a we have a narrative unfolding this morning. Uh, you probably saw a pattern in the in the music uh, that you'll see now continue in the Word as we examine it uh, in just a moment. I'll begin with a question. And the question is, is, is freedom always a good thing? Is freedom always a good thing? You know, I think that as, as Americans, we, we love our freedom, right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's a good thing. And nationally, I would say that's true. Freedom is a, is a great thing nationally. But was, was freedom a good thing for your, your teenager? <laughs> maybe. Was freedom a good thing when you were a teenager? Mm, maybe not, right? Is freedom always a good thing? You know, laws restrict freedom. You say, well, I don't know. We live in a free country. I'd want it to be free. Well, do you want laws that restrict the way that you drive? I think so, right? Do you want laws that restrict road rage violence? I I think so. Do we want laws that restrict drunk driving? Do we want laws that restrict theft? Yeah, well, is that limiting freedom? I guess so, in a way, right? So is freedom always a good thing? Yes and no. I guess there are some examples where maybe that's not the case. You see, the right answer is that freedom is a great thing when it is lived within the right structure. Unlimited freedom is not a good thing, but within the proper structure, a good structure, freedom is a wonderful thing. You know, the prodigal son sought freedom apart from his father's house, right? He sought freedom apart from his father's house, and he got it until he realized that true freedom was found in his father's house, right? I once heard a pastor talk about freedom and the gift and the curse, kind of back and forth. He turned to a well-known source of philosophical wisdom, uh, Thomas the Train, to talk about this word freedom. You see, there was an episode, he said, where Thomas, uh, Thomas falls off the tracks, and he says, I'm free. And we say, you dummy, no, you're not, <laughs> right? Right? Because he's not free, he's off the tracks, but Thomas was never meant to live outside of the tracks. He's now stuck. He cannot truly live as he was designed, a life of enjoyment, until he functions on the tracks. And so, that's kind of a silly analogy, but there's a lot of truth to that even in our lives. So, in the beginning, God created tracks for humanity. He created a design for humanity, a way to live, a way to flourish, a way to enjoy the creation. Adam and Eve sought their own freedom. How'd that go? Stuck. Man thirsted for supposed freedom apart from the tracks, diving into sin like chugging salt water that promised fulfillment but only left them still thirsting. And ever since then, the human condition has been plagued by the pursuit of freedom, the pursuit of happiness by getting off the tracks. We call it sin. Never has God designed us, and yet we find ourselves stuck saying, I'm free but never free. Our passage today is the collision of man's problem and God's solution. That's actually the story every time we open God's word, right? But today it is especially the case that we see the collision of man's problem and God's solution. And man, if you would lend yourself this morning, there's going to be a blessing to be beheld, okay? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 together, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 says this, <clears throat> Four, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. So, this world of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, you, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone." We've been going through the book of Hebrews for a few weeks now and have looked at chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, which is where we are this morning. And this is an interesting book. You know, it's—I'll be honest. I was, like, getting ready this morning, brushing my teeth, and I was thinking, I miss John. John. And it's so simple. It's so much easier to unpack and extract a beautiful blessing It's harder to do that in this book. And I'm not saying that that's me putting down your intellect. I'm saying it's it's saying all of us, we, we struggle to see, we jump back into a different context and bring it to our present and then mine it for good things. And it's just hard to do. And so I just want you to join me on maybe a little bit of a complex journey, but one that will be extremely rewarding by the end of our time. This book. A letter, but really not even much of a letter more than it is a a sermon. It's written by someone that had a preacher's heart. And so he's writing and he uses a lot of the Old Testament to bring in application and principles to give to the people that are receiving this letter. And so I say it's a hard book. For one thing, it's an anonymous author. For another thing, it's a very vague audience. We know that they're Jews, but that they are Greek speaking Jews in the the Greek uh, or the Roman world. It's a vague situation. We read already that they've been worshiping angels to some extent And there's more to that story that we'll get to in the weeks and months to come. But simply put, so far what we've seen is that Jesus is great. Jesus is greater than the angels is the way that this letter or sermon has begun. He has a name that is superior to theirs, which is what we saw at the beginning of chapter 4. They called him the firstborn, the heir of all things. He is supreme in everything. He also has a position that is superior to that of the angels. He is the king. He is even the creator. And he reigns, like we just sang, supreme but then there's an aside that we looked at last week sort of a a, again a a pastor or preacher's application where it deviates from the path of doctrinal unpacking and goes into an, an aside where it's unpacking some application and says beware the drift pay close attention don't neglect the truth of the gospel that has anchored you if you fall from it you will fall from him and now he gets back to the argument the son son of god is greater than the angels. So he dives back in in verse 5, which is why it begins with that word for, because he's saying let's get back to the argument, the doctrinal things at hand. He gets back to the argument and says man is greater than the angels, therefore Jesus is greater than the angels. Did you hear me? That's a weird thing you just heard me say. The author is going to say man is greater than the angels, therefore Jesus is greater than the angels. And you should hear that and say, excuse me? Do you remember those pictures I showed you a couple weeks ago that freaked you out and probably gave you nightmares? (laughs) Man is greater than the angels. That's a weird thing to hear, but I want to show you some neat things that I think supports that idea that we'll find in Scripture. The structure this morning is is going to be as uh, such—you saw the title behind me a moment ago—the great undoing. And really, I'm going to give you sort of a part A and part B of that, that the great undoing has two components— The undoing of creation, but also the undoing of sin. And so the first thing, if you're taking notes this morning, that I want you to see is that the first part of the great undoing is the undoing of God's perfect design. The undoing of God's perfect design. Verse 5 begins as sort of a reality check, and I'll read it in just a moment, but it begins as sort of a reality check. It may seem for now like the angels are superior beings in relation to man. Angels are far more powerful than, I don't know about you, but, but about, than me. Angels are eternal even. They live forever. They have a glorious existence, and yet you compare that with man and say, I don't know. But l- listen, the thing is, though that is currently the case, that angels do seem much more superior to man, though that is currently the case, that isn't the case forever. And that's what I want you to see in our passage this morning. It begins in verse five, and we'll walk through the text together. It says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world. Hear that again. It wasn't to angels that God subjected the world. In other words, God didn't put the world below angels. God didn't put creation below angels. He's saying, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's a short verse, but there's a lot to see here. He says, subjected the world to come. The world to come is not heaven. The world to come is a new creation, and I'm not going to get into the weeds here because I think it deviates from the path some, but, you know, we're not going to go and just have a spiritual existence for all of eternity. Those of us that are in Christ Jesus certainly will be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but there's a day coming. The book of Revelation, it's very clear that God will make all things new, that we will have a physical dwelling with Him. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the physical creatures. That's how God intended it. The creation was then fractured. Don't you think that if that's the way God intended it, that one day we will have it that way? right? A new creation is coming. So when it says here, subjected the world to come, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about a new creation, whether it be called earth or something, we don't even think of yet. It is a new creation that awaits. Revelation 21 5 supports this and says, and he who was seated on the throne said, this is a word of prophecy, behold, I am making all things, what? New a new creation. I am doing something, God says, to make all things new. You see, in this new world that is to come, angels are given a special position. Again, you go read the book of Revelation, that's very clear. They're given a special position. But listen, the more special position is not given to angels, but to human beings, especially the greatest human being, the Son of God. But again, This is true in some sense of all human beings, just as it was before sin corrupted the world. A special position for people. Go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says this. Then God said, this is in the beginning, when he created man. He said, let us make man in our image. He never said that about the angels. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. You know what that means? Power, authority, authority. Let them have dominion over what? Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Does that sound like a special position? You better believe it does. He never says that about the angels. He says that about human beings, again, pre-sin, pre fall. This thought of world subjection to humanity is something that should wow us. And we, I think, are in very good company. It wowed God's anointed, David, which the author quotes to drive home his point. Look at verses six through eight. It says, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Notice what's happening right now. The author of Hebrews is preaching. Okay, he is going back to the Old Testament, his Bible and saying, here's what's written down. He says, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Notice in verse six, the way that he phrases it. He says, it has been testified somewhere you know, I don't know if you realize this, but the chapters and verses, those numbers that you see in your Bible, those didn't come to be until way after these things were written down. Way, way after. Generations after. Hundreds of years after. And so, the author of Hebrews doesn't have chapter and number to call back to and say, you know, in in Psalm chapter 8, it says. He didn't say that. He says, it is testified somewhere. Also, This author's tendency is to not mention human authors. To him, it isn't a matter of historical record. He doesn't say it is written. He doesn't want to focus on what is written down. What he instead says is, to him, it isn't just historical record. It is testified, meaning that God is still speaking through the Bible. God is still speaking through his word. And what he quotes is Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And I'm going to read them, okay? You're going to see it It sounds very close. In fact, you can look down at your Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and see it is almost copy and paste the exact same thing. It says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 says, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. He's preaching. You see, David in Psalm chapter 8 was writing about human beings. The author of Hebrews says that his words, David's words, are ultimately truer of Jesus. But before we get to Hebrews, I think it's important that we understand and look at that in its context and see let's read David as David intended it. In that same Psalm, chapter 8, Psalm 8, in verse 3, right before the part that this author begins to quote, what it says is, David writes, when I look at the heavens, when I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers. And this image is of of David just looking up and saying, wow, what is man that you're mindful of him? You see the image, right? When I look at the heavens, see the works of your fingers, what is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, certainly David knows that man is created in the image of God. What is man that you're mindful of? And I think it's funny that David has this perspective already, and David did not have access to the most powerful of telescopes and satellites. Guys, you and I know to a far greater degree what is man that you're mindful of him, do we not? We know to a far greater degree, and yet David picked up on it. We are tiny, but we are special. We're given souls. We're given Higher thinking, the ability to think complex thoughts, intelligence, which is questionable for some people, right? You go spend twenty minutes on the highway out in Meridian, Mississippi, and you may question that intelligence. But it is true that God makes human beings special. What does man that you're mindful of us? He says you've made them a little lower than the angels, than the heavenly beings, a little lower. What he means by that is that humans die; we're lesser in power. But he says right after that, glory is bestowed to us, honor has given to us. Again, David then says, you've given humans dominion. You've put all things under the feet of man. Again, it calls back to Genesis 126. Let them have dominion over the fish and the beasts and the creatures and everything else. That's David. That's what David says. He's blown away that God has seen fit to make man special. The author of Hebrews then comes in and says, there's more to it than you think, David. In Hebrews, we see sort of I don't know if you know what this means, a double entendre, which just means that there's two meanings that are sort of running parallel to one another. All of what David said is true of humanity, absolutely. But the author of Hebrews is saying it's even more true of Jesus. It's all true of humanity, it's even more true of Jesus. The greatest representative of humanity brings it all to pass. And this is very important. I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't until verse 9 of Hebrews 2 that the author is clearly only referring to the Son, to Jesus. But I want to also suggest that until then, he is likely meaning it to be true of humanity, but most perfectly true in Jesus. And it starts with love in the heart of God. That very first verse, verse 6, it starts with love in the heart of God. Just like David, I think, noticed that as well. It says in chapter 2 of Hebrews, starting in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Verse 7 then says, you made him for a little while, Your translation may say a little lower. I'm going to get there in a second. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. What the author, David, and what the author of Hebrews wants you to see is that God loves you. God loves people. He has made you human beings special. Again, my translation says you've made them a little while lower than the angels. If you have a King James or a New King James, it may say something along the lines of, you've made them a little lower than the angels. Well, which is it? Is it a little while talking about time, or is it a little talking about quality or quantity? Well, I would suggest to you that verses—the second part of verse 8 and also verse 9 makes it clear that little while is probably the best translation. Just look down real quick. The second part of verse 8 says, "At present, Notice the time. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, time, right? Not yet. Verse 9 then says, we see him who for a little while, it's the same word, was made lower. So, if it's, if it's made a little lower, then it says, who was made a little lower, made lower. Which doesn't really read very cleanly in its literal translation. So, I think that what the author here is saying is, for a little while, for a time, people are lower than the angels. We don't yet see it fully come to be that men are greater, which is what we see in verse 8. We, see who, uh, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The whole meaning is that God's design for humanity is to have dominion forever. It was the original design, the OG design. That's how God had it. The people would exercise dominion. In fact, it reaches two angels. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, it says, Paul's writing, do you not know, listen how crazy this sounds? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Notice that's future tense. We are to judge angels. The word for judge in that passage, which is a confusing passage, I'll be honest. I don't really understand fully what Paul is saying there. But the word means to rule or to govern. Most likely, the meaning of this passage is that believers in heaven will take part in the judgment of fallen angels, but also maybe exercise some authority over the holy angels. Which kind of makes sense in Hebrews chapter one verse fourteen, which we looked at two weeks ago. It says that God sends His angels to serve the saints. And again, I'll just reiterate that man was created in God's image, not angels. Man has been redeemed by Christ, not angels. And so, without going off trail, my point is to say that in the beginning creation and in the creation to come, God's design was and will be one of dominion, world subjection for humanity. I know we're really bogging down here, but. The context, the point in context is this. If you think that Jesus, author is saying to the audience, if you think that Jesus cannot be greater than angels, then think again. Because God's original intent for man is that man would be greater than angels. Not a good argument, is what the author is saying. And I want to just take a pause and say something about the story of man. Man. The story of man, our story that started way before you started. The story of man is a trilogy. It comes in three parts. I'm a fan of a trilogy. I won't go into it. Part one is this we had it all. There a slide that shows the three parts here. We had it all. Go back to the beginning. Everything in subjection. There was a time that that was God's design, Genesis 126, dominion over the creation. We had it all. In the beginning, God created all things, and it was, say it, good. That was God's design. It was all in order, and we had it all, didn't we? Dominion. But it didn't stay that way. Because what we read about in Genesis chapter 3 is that we lost it all. Notice that it says in verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, the second part, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, right now, it's not the way that it was, and it's not the way that it will be. We lost it all. And that's where we are currently, right? We are currently in that place, this in-between number one and number three, where we don't have it all, and we haven't yet received it all, and yet we find our place in a sense where the world is in disarray, and the creation is fractured and broken and lost. That's us. That's the story of man right now. And you see the disparity The depravity of man all around us, that's the great undoing. We had it all, and we lost it. And what God created as good has been undone. It's like a a trilogy, the original trilogy of Star Wars, right? Where in the first part you see a lot of hope. In fact, it's named that. And the second part comes, Empire Strikes Back, and the movie ends. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's been a few years. You probably should have by now, uh, like 50 of them. I made some of you guys just feel really old. Maybe 40 of them, right? But in that movie, the second, the part two, it ends with Luke Skywalker's hand getting chopped off and then barely escaping with things looking bleak. That's part two. That sounds pretty relatable. That's our part two marred, scarred, and awaiting a hope. But there's a part three that is to come. It's not yet realized. I mean, that's what he says in uh, verse eight there. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjective zone. That not yet word, it's important because it says that it's coming. It will be here. It will be realized. We will receive it all. We are not currently what we were meant to be, and God's design was for us to exercise dominion. And at times, please hear this, at times, if, if that's God's design for us, don't you see at times that that, that design, that, we, that the creation is subjected to us, you see it seep through the cracks. It's broken right now, but we see it seep through the cracks, that we do have dominion, people over this creation. But so often, with that design, we see a corruption by sin. In other words, some of you guys are, are fishermen, you like to go catch a bunch of fish. Sometimes you go out on the lake and what happens? You don't catch nothing. Or you catch very few and you think, man, this wasn't a very successful trip. You know why? Because those fish are against you. In fact, they're literally against you. When you have one on the hook and you're pulling it in, what are they doing? Not swimming into the boat. Because they are not in subjection to you. They want to be against you. And yet you seeping through the cracks can pull them into subjection to you. Some of you guys are gardeners, but gardens come by hard work and sweat, right? And sometimes the garden doesn't even produce what you expect it to produce because it's hard work, and that garden is not obedient to you. It doesn't subject itself to you like it properly should. There's a reason that you don't go swim with crocodiles or cuddle with grizzly bears because they're against you, and they do not want favor with you. The creation is against us. One went on a safari one time. Terrifying. It's not a zoo with caged animals. You're in their territory. I'm the one trespassing. We had a black mamba snake suddenly cross the street. You ever seen a black mamba? They are big. They are long. And this black mamba can get four feet off the ground. And our little open on both sides Jeep was not protection enough for me when a black mamba came six feet away from me, got up like this, and it was like, you're in trouble. I was like, you got that right. I really was feeling a Genesis 3 moment in that moment. You know what I'm saying? And that just reminded me that, look, the creation is not at present subjected to me. I sprayed my grass this week to try to get rid of stickers and some clovers that are just really obnoxious. We'll see if the creation subjects itself to me because it's a toil. Because naturally speaking, the world is not right now saying, you're in control, man. Notice what it says, I'm opposed to you. I'm biting you. And while my dog usually sits when I say sit, I don't know about you, but in large part, my dominion doesn't seem to be firing on all cylinders. You feel me? But it's far more severe than that. Creation is being bowed to by humanity. Israel bowed to a golden calf, a creature, an animal. In Hinduism, cows and snakes are offered prayers and warm milk, for their favor. Korean folklore says that tigers symbolize power and courage and they ward off evil and bring good luck. In Nepal, they bow to dogs. In southern India, elephants are worshiped in temples. <clears throat> Not to mention in the world religions, goats, owls, monkeys, pigs, cats, just about everything that you can imagine is an object of praise and worship, seeking favor from nature, from creation. In the garden Designed to be ruled by, designed to rule the animals. Adam and Eve were ruled by an animal, the serpent. And before you go thinking that we Americans, we're not like those primitive people, listen, before you go thinking that we Americans are morally superior, we grovel at the feet of creation. Maybe just not animals, although some of us. We are miserable without electricity crippled without a smartphone emotionally unstable when a football game doesn't go our way we become filled with worry when the economy a creation becomes unpredictable our emotions every day ebb and flow based not on our interactions with the creator but based on how the created world interacts with us we were created to rule creation but so often we are ruled by the creation and it's not new dominion is fractured and the consequences are severe and prosperity preachers with their heads in the dirt tell you that something is wrong with your life if you aren't happy and healthy and rich. The Bible just doesn't teach that, y'all. Romans 8, says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans 8, 18 and 19 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and there are sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Listen, simply put, you are not what you were designed to be. Church, listen, keep your eyes on eternity. There is hope. Because what this translation, what this Bible says, is that it is for a little while. But one day, all things will be made new, be restored. We sang a song just a moment ago that said, bringing many sons to glory. This is where we get that. There is glory that awaits us, church, for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. And that's the second part of the great undoing. Because it's the undoing of sin's corrupting bondage. The undoing of sin's corrupting bondage. See, all those verses that we just read are true of man. That's what David was writing it. He's writing it about mankind. But also what we're going to see now is that all of those verses are ultimately true of Jesus. You see, Jesus, as we already saw in chapter 1, is greater than the angels. And this argument continues that. In verses 5 and 6, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And David uses the same argument to talk about man. The author of Hebrews is saying it's really most true of Jesus. Jesus reigns above it all. Verse 6 then goes and says, What is man that you're mindful of him, the author of Hebrews is saying, or the son of man that you care for him. Listen, those of us that have read the New Testament and know who Jesus the Christ is, that word son of man takes on a whole different meaning than it did for the Hebrews. You see, in the original language of Hebrew, that the Old Testament that Psalm 8 was written in, which uses that term son of man, in Psalm 8, a Hebrew reader would read that and just see human beings, because that was a common phrase that would be used to mean human beings. Who is the son of man? You and me. We are the son of man, aren't you? Aren't you a child of a human being? So the author, or the people that read Hebrew in the Old Testament, when they read Psalm 8, they see son of man, right? It says, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? That just means, what are people that you care for them? What are us, us humans? But it's not so in Greek. The New Testament is written in a different language, Greek. In Hebrew, son of man means man. But in Greek, it is also the term that Jesus liked to use for himself as human beings representative. In fact, that word son of man is used, let me hear this. 88 times referring to Jesus. He ain't just any human being. He's the God-man, right? 88 times that word is used to refer to him, sometimes about him, but his favorite term for himself wasn't the king, it wasn't the Christ, it wasn't the Messiah. His favorite word for himself was son of man. I say that to say this. New Testament readers, those that have placed their faith and trust in the son of man, When they read with a New Testament palette this reference in Hebrews 2, verse 6, or the Son of Man that you care for Him, they read Son of Man, and they don't think any human being. They think of Jesus. John 1, 51, Jesus says, He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, meaning that He's the gateway to heaven. It's a tension grab for believers who know what's up. The second part of verse 8 in chapter 2, Hebrews, says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, again, read both humans and of Jesus. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. In other words, God left nothing outside of man, outside of the Son's control. At present, it says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Listen to this. But we see him. Notice now, this is a pastor preaching, all right? It says, notice we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We just read that in Psalm 8. Made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. It says that in verse 7. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every one. We don't see the order, design, dominion as it's supposed to see, but what verse 9 says, but we do see him. We don't see it the way it's supposed to see, but we do see him. It's the author's commentary on verses 7 and 8. By the way, right here in verse 9, namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. This is crazy. This is the first time Jesus' name is mentioned in this book. First time. It's talked a lot about the Son. It's mentioned the Christ. But it's the first time where it says, you want to know who he is? Jesus. It's Jesus. I think that's probably intentional, seeing as Jesus became the name of the Son, in his humiliation, and his incarnation, as he took on flesh. It says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. That lower form of the son is Jesus. He took on flesh, and his name was Jesus. You will have a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Jesus is made a little lower than the angels. He took on flesh, took on humanity, and never surrendered his deity, but he made himself weak. This is what chapter 2 of Philippians means. Philippians 2, 6-11 It's going to be on the screen. Watch very closely, okay? Talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As son of man, he endured the sin of man. And as a result, Jesus was, as it says in verse seven, crowned with glory and honor. Philippians 2 continues in verse nine and says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above. How many names? Every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Does that sound like glory and honor to you? You better believe it does. Every knee should bow in heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that it says in verse um, 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, uh, verse 9 of Hebrews 2. Listen, namely Jesus. Listen to how crazy this sounds. Crowned with glory and honor. Listen, because of. Don't miss that. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of Death. Crowned, not in spite of a shameful, ridiculous criminal's death. Crowned, not in spite of overwhelming shame being thrown on him. Crowned, not in spite of those things, but because of it. Guys, listen. You'll see this on the screen behind me. The crucifixion was not the great death blow to Jesus. It was the great death blow to sin. The crucifixion was not the great death blow to Jesus. You know how I know that? Because he's alive. It was the great death blow to sin. You know whose days are numbered? You guessed it. Death. Sin. His days are numbered. We see two Adams. Adam in the garden. And the firstborn of the new creation The second Adam, as Paul calls him, Jesus. You know the word Adam is a Hebrew word that just means man? Solid, creative name there, Genesis 1, right? Just means man. You see, what we have is the first man, but he failed. But the second man came along and did what the first man failed to do, the second Adam. Whereas the first Adam failed to carry out the duties of image-bearing, the last Adam has succeeded. Whereas the first Adam plunged into humanity or plunged humanity into sin and death, the last Adam plunged into death, bearing sin for the sake of humanity. Do You need to hear that again? Whereas the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death, the last Adam plunged into death, bearing sin for the sake of humanity. You need to hear that again? Whereas the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. The last Adam plunged into death, bearing sin for the sake of humanity. That's a trifecta that you needed to hear. Guys, the redeeming work of the last Adam has undone the enslaving work of the first. (laughs) Is that not amazing? Is that not beautiful? The redeeming work of the last Adam has undone the enslaving work of the first Adam, and that is the story of man in three parts. Put that slide back up there in three parts. That part three is that we will receive it all. And notice the emphasis there is not yet, but the day is coming when we will see death put in its grave, never, never to disturb again. It's a promise, it's a hope. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, talking about us, children of God now, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. First Peter 1, 4 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Guys, the story of man, my story, and your story is a story of hope. Guys, the Bible isn't a naive, head-in-the-dirt book as if there will be no suffering. Some of you are in the middle of intense, immense suffering where doctors can't help you, where friends can't help you. Some of you wake up each morning under a suffocating weight of stress, anger, sadness, despair, and loneliness, and it seems that there is no hope. Your story is one of hope. Not yet, but we will receive it all. That's why that phrase exists. Present sufferings, future glory. Present sufferings, future glory. And the key, as we saw last week, don't drift. Don't drift. Endure. Persevere. Anchor yourself. There's a quote by an anonymous author. I couldn't find one. It's this. Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. It's a good reminder, man, that for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, that is our, that's the truth, isn't it? Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Your life may be full of present hurt, present conflict, but the present is not your future. And you don't deserve that hope. The hope is a gift of God, the grace. God in his grace and mercy and love wants to bestow it on you. And while this life, your life, my life are full of hardship, the Bible is clear that because of our futures, this life can be a life of joy. It's a life of hope. It's also a life of joy. Romans 12, 12 says rejoice in hope. Notice the joy. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. It doesn't minimize the difficulty. But fix your eyes on the glorious future. When Brooke and I got engaged, I was, uh, I was in seminary, and she was finishing college at, at Alabama. And we had a long-distance engagement, which was brutal. For 10 months, I think we were long-distance engaged. Some of you guys were engaged, though, without FaceTime and without texting and, like, maybe even without a phone. <laughs> and so uh, I realized, take what I say with a grain of salt, is that what is difficult now may, may have been more difficult then, but it doesn't minimize the fact that it was difficult for us. And that was a hard time, but we knew that there was a date coming when our marriage would be fulfilled, where the bride and the bridegroom would be made one. We we right now are engaged. Yes, we're the bride of Christ, but that marriage has not yet been fully realized in the second coming of the Christ. And so right now, in that engagement period, a long distance engagement, if you wanna put it that way, it's not free from conflict. It's not free from difficulty. But our story, despite the present difficulty, is a story of a permanent happiness. It's one of joy. You know, in Psalm 8, I think sometimes we really—I'll finish up now. I think sometimes we we think of the biblical authors or characters or figures as not human beings. But I really think about David, a shepherd, out in a field, looking into the sky— And just dumbfounded. He looks at the work of God's hands and says, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is man that you care for him? I want this to be the thought that you leave with today. We have a tendency to leave this place beaten up, brought low, toes stepped on. In some ways, that's appropriate, but I really think that we would do better to be uplifted. Guys, we are Thomas the train, veering from the track that God has laid for us, thinking that we will find something fulfilling, but it only leaves us stuck. We are the prodigal sons, departing from the Father, selfishly seeking true freedom to live as we choose, but it only breeds despair. Please hear me say this, church, there is no more freeing, fulfilling place to be than on God's track. And there is no more loving place to be than in the arms of the Father that you've drifted from. He doesn't stand ready to bring you low. He stands ready to lift you up. Today, will you let him surrender to him?